Hello and welcome to episode two of the Frame and Sequence podcast. My name is Todd Rittendarrow, and in this episode, I sit down with my friend, painter, author, and filmmaker, Alex Beard. Alex is probably best known for his elaborate wildlife compositions created in his signature style, which he has coined abstract naturalism. Alex has spent much of his life traveling to some of the world's most remote wildlife outposts, observing and painting and continually honing his style while exploring the themes of cultural and environmental interconnectivity of all things. He is also a passionate conservationist and philanthropist, and in 2012, Alex established the Watering Hole Foundation, a public charity engaged in saving endangered wildlife and preserving their environments. I've been fortunate to go on camel safari several times with Alex in northern Kenya, the first time of which was six years ago when we went for a month to film a documentary about the devastating effects of elephant poaching. It was a truly life-changing experience, and we've had many long conversations about art and life around the campfire in the bush as well as in his studio, and I'm glad we finally got a chance to record one. This conversation is actually from last August in New Orleans where Alex lives and has his gallery. We talk about his early start as an artist, what it means to be an engaged artist in the world today, some of his artist practice then and now. We also talk about his children's book series, Tales from the Watering Hole, which I highly recommend checking out. I will provide some links for that. And he also shares a few great stories from when he was a boy visiting his uncle Peter in Kenya. Uh, I always enjoy my chats with Alex, and I hope you will enjoy this one too. Alex, thanks for doing this with me. My great pleasure, of course. Uh, I think the last time that we tried to record some audio, we were both sitting in the bush around a campfire in northern Kenya, and a, a can of Tusker exploded all over my recorder. So uh, <laughs> That's true. That's true. I'm glad we get to revisit some of this. Yeah, Tusker on the back of a camel tends to get shaken. That they do. <laughs> That's um, why I only drink whiskey on safari. <laughs> probably a good rule of thumb. <laughs> you know, you've been going to Kenya since you were a young man, is that where you found wanting to be an artist? I think I already wanted to be an artist before I went to Africa for the first time. I'm not sure I quite knew what that meant, but it was definitely in my thought process, right? I mean, I was already making, I was aping my Uncle Peter, frankly, right? So I was making journals and taking pictures and doing not very good illustrations. And the Africa part of it had both a sense of adventure to it, so it was alluring to a teenager. But then the reality of it is also so fabulous that as a result, it's alluring as a human. Right? So then that tends to, because I've become somebody who's interested in nature and using that in my artwork, it has become a good vehicle for me to tap into the inspiration that one finds in the natural world. I don't think it's exclusive to Africa, by the way. You can find it just as easily in many, many, many other places. Africa happens to be a, a bailiwick of mine, so I use it, but it, you could do it just as easily in your own backyard, frankly, if you were. <laughs> uh, we're. I should say that we're sitting on the front porch of my house, the Pink Elephant in the Garden District in New Orleans, and there's a thunderstorm about to roll through, so you might get a little thunder and rain in the background. That's quite all right. It's nice to have a little atmosphere, I think. Yeah, man. To the point of nature in your backyard. Indeed. Speaking of New Orleans, what ultimately brought you here? Ironically, I wasn't brave enough to actually move to Nairobi, so New Orleans was a good second choice. <laughs> For sure. Especially when I first moved here in the 90s. I was born and raised in New York City, and I knew I didn't want to live in New York. 
although I still love going to New York, it was not going to be the place that I was going to be comfortable in a concrete jungle when I wanted greenery. And New Orleans was a place where I didn't need to get my passport stamped, but was very much on the edge of the world. In the 1990s, this was much more banana republic than it was great American city. And that suited me up and down. <laughs> so it gave me a place to, to be surrounded by creative people doing creative things in a creative place without the rush and tumble of a big commerce center like Manhattan. And did you move here to study art specifically, or was it just the town that drew you? No, I was invited to come and study at the New Orleans Academy of Fine Arts under a, uh, a guy named Ozaklis Ozols, who is still alive and still teaching at the Academy. And he knows more about classical painting technique and design and structure than anybody I've ever met. So I came to study with him for a year, which I did, and learned a tremendous amount. And in the course of that year, discovered that New Orleans was the place that I would stay. Were there any specific things that stick out in your mind that he taught you that sort of informed how you developed your own style? Yes, is the answer. I had already taken art history classes and design classes in school and that sort of thing, the way that one does. So I knew that there was structure to the composition, but I didn't quite understand how hand and glove metaphysical mathematics and composition in a painting, how, how, how close together they are. And so he was able to explain in a fairly straightforward and understandable fashion about the interconnectedness of the divine proportion and Fibonacci's exponential growth system and the way that your face lies out for perfect proportion and the way that the human body is drawn and how all of those techniques all draw back to the same kind of mathematics we use to understand our place in the universe. That was extremely eye-opening to me. And then your style is so uniquely yours. Did, was that something that naturally developed out of that or was that a conscious choice to kind of move more into the abstraction? You know, I think that's because of the way that I learned to make art. Um, and what I mean by that is that I was not an art student. I have degrees in history and literature from Tufts as an undergrad, right? I mean, nothing, nothing special. And I had an Emersonian view to my education about art, which was that I would find somebody that knew more about a subject that I was interested in than I did, and then I would go learn from them, thus coming to New Orleans to go see Ozaklis. But that was also true at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston with a printmaker and bookmaker named Carl Sesto. And it was true of a guy who did a, something called the Drawing Marathons at the New York Studio School named Graham Nixon. And so I learned quite a lot from each of them, but I was never in an art program. So I, as a result, was not ever, I was always the worst in my class, never the best. And so as a result, I was constantly trying to figure out how to do what I was supposed to, but already had a, 
but I had already been making art for so long myself that I had a few things that were inescapable in my own style that I was able to integrate into the things that I was learning. But it wasn't that I was taking what I was learning and then trying to implement my style into it. Is I was trying to figure out how to actually paint the human figure to look like the human figure. Right. <laughs> and it just happens that the way that I paint that looks like I painted it. <laughs> For sure. For any artist that might be trying to find their own style, is there a unique piece of advice that you would suggest? I don't know about a unique piece of advice because most of the advice that's given to young artists, the good advice at any rate, is somewhat apocryphal, right? I mean, like, you know, don't give up. Right. Um, <laughs> but that's sort of, you know, ethereal. Yeah. Rather than I mean, like I would say concrete. that if, you're, if you want specific instructions in the instruction manual how to develop your own style... I think it has to do with a combination of doing what's natural and referencing everything that came before with a goal of, for trying to figure out what's the large, long arc of art's responsibility in our society. So that means don't just pay attention to your peers, but inquire about those that came before and why they did what they did at the time that they did. It's easy to get stuck thinking that Picasso was famous because he put cubism into portraiture and just made people look funny. But it's not that. It's that he was experimenting with the larger notion of time as a dimension applicable to the two-dimensional surface. And that then means a whole other thing. So that puts Picasso in the school of addition to the collective thought of human advancement. And how do we perceive ourselves in relationship to our surroundings in a, in a, in a non-specific way which is not tied to the moment in which you are living, but rather into the greater scope of trying to understand the real mysteries of the universe. Now, that sounds pretty heady, but if you're a serious young artist looking to be a serious artist, leave the competitiveness behind and try to dive into the real meat and potatoes of why do we make art? which in my version is about perceiving our surroundings and then interpreting it in a fashion which, which tells truths to all of us collectively. Now that can mean a million things, but that's how you find your own style, is how do you articulate clearly through whatever medium you're using your understanding of the big questions in life, not the petty ones. Right. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, as I say, no. I know that's a little, you know, you could go cross-eyed in the middle of that, but it doesn't make it any less true. I hope you all can hear the rain in the background. It's a proper Louisiana gutter washer. Definitely is. Feeling that August heat now. It will end in a moment as it right. always does here. So was there any, was there any artist that stood out to you when you were coming up that 
you realize that that's what they were doing? Like you mentioned Picasso, were there any contemporaries or anyone that you were studying with that sticks out that what they said was sort of bringing you to You that? know, yes and no is the answer. I'm terrible with artists' names and very good with what they painted. I mean, as in I can look at a painting and tell you when it was made, wh why it was done in the way that it was done, what the... Um, what the time in which it was done allowed the painter to do in relationship not just to the society in which they lived and the time in which they lived in it, but also in terms of the convention of, the, of other artists at the time. And that comes from looking at a lot of art. So it's not then that I could give you a straight line from Medigliani to Francis Bacon to, you know, whomever. Um, although I probably could give you a, a line, but, it's, but that would be too specific. I mean, for example, I can tell you that I think that there is a tradition, a great tradition of portraiture that does have a straight line that goes from Picasso to Francis Bacon and from Francis Bacon to um, Sigmund, not Sigmund Freud, but Freud, the painter, in, in, English painter. And that you could follow that track and learn from one to the next how that advanced and how that would then affect the work that I made. But that would only reference a single bucket of thought. And it's equally interesting to try to take a review to Japanese calligraphic Buddhist work and how to get out of your own way and how did scrolls and screens lead to where we are today right and they all have to walk hand in hand once again that's sort of an evasive answer but also nonetheless true for sure i mean I'm, there's probably not a concrete answer i know it's an arbitrary question to a degree saying you know how did you get there are people i i, I would say there are people that i think do it better than others um I'm, I'm a fan of Walton Ford. I think he does particularly good animals in odd settings, sort of neo-Audubon-ish, um, as an example of somebody whose work I like. But I would equally say in the same school as him is Ralph Steadman, who's illustrating Rolling Stone articles for Hunter Thompson. Right? I mean, they're both masters at articulating that medium and I see similarities between the two even though they're very very different and then as a result I draw from both to find where I live in the middle right yeah that's super fascinating I mean it seems like all these guys they're not they don't have the message on the surface per se it's just it's a part of the pieces that they make well also I'm uh, you know we are all after a fashion self-centered in that we're looking at the universe through our own eyes doing so with a slant that um, is geared towards what it is that you're interested in you as the individual um, and so I as a result of taking meaning even if it doesn't belong to somebody else's piece and absconding with it for my own purposes. I mean, obviously, nature and then conservation plays huge into your work. How do you keep conservation as part of your work without becoming a 
each piece is a message of yeah. conservation? Well, the conservation aspect of what I do is, in my mind, something which is tied to human responsibility and a desire to fix what I view as the root problem beneath which all of our other problems are subservient. And what I mean by that is that there, in the simplest terms, there are too many people on the planet consuming too much of our natural resources and the balance of nature has thrown us, our balance with nature is thrown out of whack. And so as a result, it's both an issue of tribalism, overconsumption, diminishing natural resources leading to large-scale climate change, conflict as a result that leads to vast exoduses of migrants that put pressure on not just the West, but put pressure on, on more stable countries, which then in turn leads to xenophobia and and, 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 that as a human being, I want to try to do what I can to ensure that the world is a better place than I found it. And I see the environmental catastrophe that we are unleashing upon the world as a thing which ends up with us being the, the species which gets hurt the most from it which is a rem remarkable thing to say, seeing as we're slaughtering species as fast as they can, we can find them. I mean, I think that this thing ends up with us in the same boat as all the things that we have eliminated. And so as a result, if you go back to the idea of the art, the purpose of the artist is to perceive yourself in relationship to your surroundings in a search for truth and beauty. And so to me, my understanding of my relationship to my surroundings has no small part to play in the fact that we're destroying our surroundings. And so as a result, if my art is not in some way about that, then I'm ignoring what I see to be the, the singular truth and issue that faces all of us collectively now and in the immediate future. So, as a result, conservation and art are not separate from each other. They are, in fact, one and the same. Uh, at least for me, because those are the tools that I have to use. Now then, because I draw inspiration from nature for my art, it then puts me in proximity to flashpoints where it's readily visible the consequences of our overpopulation, overconsumption of raw materials, and degradation of the balance of nature. Whether that's elephant poaching and rhino poaching in East Africa or human wildlife conflict um, in the same, or the fact that I went diving at the Great Barrier Reef when I was 20 and it was healthy and intact and now is decimated and was one of the natural wonders of the world and is now bleached. Right, so you can see it on the micro and the macro if you're looking. For sure. How old were you when you first went to Kenya? 15 or 16. 15. 
So obviously that part of the world has a special place in your heart. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and because of my Uncle Peter, the photographer, um, when I was growing up, he was when he wasn't in Africa, he was living on our sofa in Manhattan. So I'd spend many, many months, year over year, with him. I'd come home from school at the end of the day, and he'd be just waking up. And we'd, so I, I was exposed from the earliest age to the imagery of what he was producing, which of course were all these fabulous wildlife photographs, especially when I was young. I mean, it then became a lot of fashion and pop art and stuff like that. But when I was little in the early 1970s, all through the 1970s, the meat and potatoes of, of his body of work was still the end of the game and eyelids of mourning and, and all of those extraordinary Africa tomes, which of course, were in no small part in their own right about the same thing that we're talking about, about the degradation of nature. In his case, it was the mass slaughter of the big herds, but it's no different, really. It's the same conversation just 50 years down, down the line. Right. How dramatically have you seen the shift in terms of what the landscape looks like now versus when you first started going? Oh, dramatically. I mean, I, I learned to drive a stick shift Land Rover on a dirt track outside of Hog Ranch, my uncle's place, where, which was a tented camp outside Nairobi, where at the time when you went to bed at night, you looked out on the Ngong Hills and there wasn't a single light, not the sound of a barking dog or a car alarm. And all of that is now inside the city, right? I mean, I'm not talking about Greenwich. I'm talking about inside the city. So now you come and you go to Hog Ranch and you look out on a sea of lights and you're surrounded by asphalt and people. So that's a big change. Can, can you paint us a little picture of what it was like at Hog Ranch when you were growing up and visiting? <laughs> sure, it was chaos. It was lovely though. There were probably four or five big permanent sleeping tents which had thatch roofs over the top of them that were canvas tents that have a bed in them. There was electricity for a few hours a day when there was the money to buy fuel for the diesel generator, which was not always. There was a kitchen shack out of which came slightly off mayonnaise and cucumber sandwiches, which were quite good for their tanginess a fire pit outside of the dining tent, which had hanging above it the largest Cape Buffalo boss ever found that Peter found in the Aberdares many, many years ago. And it was not a world record trophy because he didn't shoot it. It was killed by a rhino. And the, rhino, the hole in the forehead from the rhino's horn is still there. And then you'd sit around the campfire and there was a... Um, there was a man, a blind man whose name was Mburu. And Mburu, maybe it was Mbuno. No, it was Mburu. And Mburu was Kamante's son. So Kamante, the little kitchen boy from out of Africa, when he was an old man, lived at Hog Ranch with his wife, Wambui. And Wambui was the, the cook. And they had a blind son named Mburu who played the guitar. And he was no Stevie Wonder, but but he would get going. <laughs> and so there would be, 
there would be Kikuyu songs around the campfire sung with gusto. And then an ever-changing population of visitors from Maasai medicine men to war correspondents to rock and roll icons and movie stars. And everybody in the middle. Wow, sounds absolutely amazing. And everybody amazing. in the middle. I it mean, was pretty cool. What an amazing place to be a young artist, sort of taking in all this input. Yeah, it was, you know, at the time, I thought it was pretty groovy, and I uh, still do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, did you, did you start making art when you were on those trips? Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. Absolutely. I, 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 you know... It was not, um, it was, you know, it was still in Africa. So it was not like that was true as I just described every day. Right? There'd be long stretches betwixt and between where it would just be me and the camp staff sitting around the fire shooting the bull. And so I'd, I'd spend days and weeks on end working on my drawings and my illustrations and and remember, it was at a time before there were cell phones or the Internet. So right. when you went, if you wanted to call home, it was a collect call, and the phone was a mile away. The nearest phone we had was a mile away. Amazing. And so that meant some level of expected self-sufficiency. And my, my version of that was making art. Right. I've been fortunate enough, obviously, to go with you multiple times now to Kenya and watch yeah. you make art in the bush, and that's sort of become almost an annual pilgrimage now, right, where you, mm. you go back to make art. And would you mind sharing with us, like, a little bit about your working process? Or you paint, I think, every day, right? You're in the studio to some degree, or...? Well, I paint or draw or write very nearly every day. That's true. Does your structure and change? And if I'm not, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> uh, and my structure definitely changes based on where I am. If I'm here in New Orleans and I'm here for an extended stretch of time, then I'm back and forth from the house to the studio and I have a list of work that I'm making that I go and I work on every day. Right. Some of which is commission work, some of which is original work that I just make for the grins and giggles of it to fill the gallery, and some of it is more project-based like writing and illustrating a whole book. And it's constantly ebbing and flowing between all of those things so that I'm always busy. Now, in Africa, or anywhere, frankly, I work catch as catch can. I've developed over the years a pretty tight art setup so that I can bring paper and ink and gouache and quill pens and brushes and be able to both pack away my art supplies and I have a tube that was made for me by, by the Mokogoto blacksmith out of PVC piping, which is the, exactly the right length for me to both carry on an international flight without having to check it and put a large roll of paper inside. And it fits on the side of a camel. So, Perfect. right, I mean, you know, all <laughs> these things are about trying to make it so that you can, um, not get to the place where you really are wanting to make art but not have the setup to be able to do it right right and then you because then you end up it's more frustrating than gratifying for sure 
So now that I have that setup, and the setup has changed over the years, right? I mean, I, there was a time when I brought a huge bag full of oil paint and canvas and all kinds of stuff, and maybe the time will come where I'll do that again, although the airlines have made it difficult to do that because they don't like you transporting paint in their hold. The paint they don't mind so much. It's the medium that they don't like, turpentine and linseed oil and all that stuff. So you've got to sort of, you know, if you have to get things once you get there, that tends to sully it a bit. For sure. Um, but all of this really comes out of the fact that I started drawing and painting in books, in journals, when I was young. And I used to go to, you know, when I was 22 or something, I would go and sit in a bar with my drawing book, and I'd sit at the end of the bar, and I would um, start drawing. And I made these drawings that I called two bourbon drawings. And I, <laughs> that's I like this this hours practice. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I would sit that. at the end of the bar, and I would order a, a a Jack Daniels and ginger ale with a squeeze of lemon, and I would then start drawing as I drank. And by the time I was done with the second of those, I would move on to the next drawing or put it away. And during the course of that time, because I wasn't just shooting these things back, right? I'm a sipper, not a gulper, especially if I'm drawing. Um, and of course, sometimes there were more than two, I have to say, in, in, <laughs> as there might be, as there might be. But what that then meant was that invariably people are curious, right? They're like baboons with a paper bag. They can't help themselves. They've got to open it to see what's inside, <laughs> even if there's a snake in it, Absolutely. <laughs> right? So invariably everybody, not everybody, but most people would come over and, and look and see what I was working on. And if you were a dick, well, then just move on. And my skin is thick enough that you could be a dick and it wouldn't prevent me from continuing to do it. Right. But I met an awful lot of people that were interesting and interested. And then I had a vehicle through which I could start a conversation with, that, with them without my having to come up with some stupid-ass opening line, which I'm almost 50 and still, and, and have been married for almost two decades, and have, I don't begin to know how one comes up with an opening line if one doesn't sit at the end of the bar drawing. Right. <laughs> That's cool. I like that a lot. And I'm not suggesting, by the way, that I did this just to pick up girls. That is not, that is not what I'm getting at. It was more right, of a right. way to interact with, with you know, in, in, in a social setting without just sitting there with my hands in my, in my pockets feeling uncomfortable. For sure. Did you ever give yourself limitations with materials or size of paper or? Yeah, because they were done in books, it meant that, you know, just like big drafting books, like, uh, you know, big journals. Right. Like a, um, well, so because they were done in that, it would be easy to just stick a quill pen in my breast pocket and a bottle of ink in my pocket and put the book under my arm and away you go. Maybe right. a brush or two if you want some effect of that. And so what that then meant was that I was comfortable working in public that way and in a catch-as-catch-can environment because every bar is different, right? right. I mean, every place you go is different. Yeah. But so that then meant that, because it wasn't just in bars, of course. I went and spent the weekend someplace. I'd find a little place where I could sit and draw in the afternoon and have a cup of tea or whatever. Were you drawing people or the environment or sort of I was just drawing whatever, everything. everything. All of it. Not all of it. You say I was drawing all of it out of my head in a very surreal fashion, and there was quite a lot of that, but, but there was equal amounts of 
gestural work where I would just start with a gesture or a splash and see what I could turn it into. Oh, that's cool. Most of those, those drawings in the bars started that way. Then people are vain, so an awful lot of people ask me to do drawings of them. So as a result, over time, there is a collection of those out in the world, although I haven't done any in a long time. And then occasionally I would draw where I was if it was particularly memorable. You know, if, if I, not if I like stumbled upon a beautiful vista, I wouldn't whip out my book and start watercoloring it. <laughs> That's not my thing. But if I was camped by a river for a week and invariably sometime during the course of that week, it would not be unlikely that I would sit down with watercolors and do a rendering of the, the river that I was sitting in front of. Even if it wasn't exact to that specific place, it would be a sort of based off of that landscape and then a, and then a, um, a combination of things that I had seen and done while I was there so I could contextualize it. And w at what point did you decide that you wanted to start showing work? At the very beginning, I, the only way I could afford to do it was to sell what I made. Oh, very cool. And were those through galleries originally or <laughs> just word of mouth or coffee shops? Oh, or audited, man, I did every which way you can imagine. And, you know, um, the formula that I tried to implement was that I would go to an interesting place. And since we're talking about Africa, let's use Africa. I'd go to Africa for a couple of months. I would make a body of work. I would bring that body of work back, show it to sell it with the express intention of making enough money to then be able to go on the next trip. And so then as a result, the people that were buying my art, some were buying it because they liked it, but an equal number were buying it because they wanted to encourage me to continue to do it. And because I wasn't just saying, hey, look at this fabulous art that you need to buy because I'm the best thing since sliced bread, but rather this is the work that I made a la dispatches from on the edge of the world and now I'm going back out to continue my quest to do whatever I'm going to do and you can help support me to do that by buying the work that I made on this last trip to make it so that I can go make more work for the next trip. And then I'd, at the time I was tying it into magazine articles that I would write and I'd come up with a premise. I'd, when I graduated from college I wanted to go to India so I um, bought airplane tickets, and then I went to all the big magazines in New York and said, I'm going to India to try to find the last tigers in the wild. Because 100 years ago, a kid from New York could get on a boat, go to Bombay, get off the boat and see and shoot a tiger in a week. There were 100,000 Bengal tigers in India. And now there are less than 3,000 left in the world. Uh, and I want to see if, there's, if it's even possible in less than 100 years for the same kid from New York to go to India and even find one. Forget about shooting it. I have no interest in shooting these things. I just want to see one. Is it even possible to find one in the wild? Not in a game park, not in a zoo, but just under a tree being a tiger. Um, and I'll write about it, I would say to this magazine. And you know, you ask enough people, eventually somebody says yes. And so, right? so then I went off to India for seven months and I wrote that article. And during the course of it, I made a lot of artwork. And then I came back and I had a show that then allowed me to go do the next thing. So that was the way that I did it. And then were they in galleries? Sometimes, but when I started to get a little older, they started to be in galleries. And older for me was younger for most. So when I was um, a teenager, teenager, I had a, you know, a, a couple of shows and friend of mine's 
lofts in downtown Manhattan, the Lower East Side and Tribeca before either of those things were fashionable. And I would just invite everybody that I knew. In fact, once I did a thing where um, I roast a pig on the roof of a townhouse on Lispinard Street to have a medieval feast so that people would come and look at my art, right. which they then did. We all had a great party, and it led me on to the next thing. Now then, I did do gallery shows because that was what was expected for a while. And I had assorted dealers, reps, agents, whatever you want to call them, in, um, in, in, in Soho and, and in Chelsea and in the places where people go. But what I found, of course, was that the rhythm for that was not very conducive to what I was trying to accomplish. As in, you spend six months alone in your studio with no one to talk to, making a single kind of art for a single kind of thought to be presented as a singular thing. And then you go and you put it up at a show where then a thousand people come and tell you how fabulous you are. And then you go back to your studio and you're by yourself again. And it was a, it was a formula for uh, the wrong kind of rhythm for creativity for me. I, I, I wanted more interaction. And then I found that in many cases, a lot of the people that came to the shows were people that were people that I knew. And so I fronted all the money to make all the art, I get it all framed, send it all to New York, sell it to all the people that I know, and then give half the money for that to a gallerist who's already, by the 48 hours after my opening, trying to set up collectors to come and look at the next person's work. So that was not conducive for me to creativity. It was conducive for stress and self-referential gobbledygook. <laughs> so is that what led you ultimately to opening your own gallery? Yeah, that's what led me to opening my own gallery. Um, I had a studio behind a gallery in the Garcinier on Royal Street in the French Quarter. And I was preparing for an exhibition in Chelsea. And so I did this whole suite of drawings. And then as I was finishing them, the gallery for in front, who was selling old masters and, and modernist middle price point pieces, you know, Picasso lithographs and that kind of stuff. Right. So ten to $30,000 price points. And they would bring their clients back into my studio to see what I was making, and these people started buying the work. And then, I, people that never heard of me before, they just came in because they wanted to get some art for their new house, and they bought a Picasso print, and then they liked what I made, so they bought one of mine. And then they started taking work and putting it in the window the gallery did. And so then people were just walking down the street and they'd see something that I made and they'd walk in and say, how much is it? And they would buy it from the gallery. And then I thought, oh, well. Invariably, the gallery would bring all of those people back to talk to me. And so mm -hmm. it then became, a, and I didn't mind that, right? Because I like talking to people. Right. So then it became a thing where it was clear that I was not just making the art, but I was closing the sale also. And so I rented a 500-square-foot storefront 
on Charter Street in the French Quarter, which at that time was less well-traveled, mm -hmm. but still not so far afield that people couldn't find me. Right across from a W Hotel, in fact. And I had the philosophy originally that I would just make good work and I would put it in the window and I would hope that people would walk in and ask me about it. And um, that was 20 years ago. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and still going strong. And I'm still doing it. You know, where I'm doing it has changed and how much of it I'm doing has changed and the price for what I sell these things to has changed. But one of the wonderful things is that some of the people who bought those things back then are still coming to see me now. That's great. All these many years later and all these different iterations. So my thought process that relationships between the artist and the public would be not just a way for me to sell my art but to create a community that being represented by a gallery doesn't allow as a horse in someone's stable. You're not, the, the community that you've created around your career is one which is being orchestrated by somebody else. In the case of me and what I do, my life, my career, my charitable work, what there is of it, etc., all ties together as part of the community of like minds which I have not so much cultivated as embraced and as a result built over time one collector, one friend, one like-minded person at a time. And if you do it for long enough, those numbers add up. And so obviously community participation is very important to you. And New Orleans obviously has a great arts community. What sort of correlation do you see between the community-based conservation stuff that you support in Kenya versus here, or how, how can art sort of, you know, transcend? God, isn't that interesting? I hadn't made that juxtaposition in my own mind before, but of course there are some similarities between the two. The first things that come immediately to mind, of course, are the not-so-successful similarities between the two. Mm -hmm. The problem with community conservation and the problem with the community of artists is you have all the same insidiousness from greed and territorial, territoriality and, and, and vanity and all of that stuff, right? I mean, you know, the, the details of it differ. In the art community, we're talking about people are trying to, they're being competitive with each other to get the same dollar. In the community conservation, you know, you're talking about people who are, who are in a pretty hard scrabble situation where they might see the better nature of working together, but then there's no rain, and what do you do with your cattle? You gotta run it on someone else's land, and that throws everything pear-shaped, because ultimately your self-interest is trumping your communal experience. So there's definitely similarities between those two things. However, the beneficent, side of the similarities between community-based conservation and a community, not just an arts community and not just the arts community in New Orleans, but a community of like-minded people in a place like New Orleans, artistic or not. I mean, New Orleans itself is a community. The similarities between those two that is the, mo the thing that's the most important is that the strength of society is in our communities, there and here that working together we accomplish great things. Working apart we divide. And while there might be some conquering, 
the conquering is self-perpetuating. So it just becomes the nature of conquer as opposed to conqueror, <laughs> right? <laughs> For sure. So, you know, what comes around goes around is a better way of saying that. Uh, and community tends to insulate you against that because you're working towards a greater multi-generational goal which is larger than yourself. And community-based conservation is certainly doing that. How do we educate our children, employ our adults, and ensure the relationship between we as the tribal members of a society and an environment and the natural world that we are dependent on? How do we all work together to ensure that that relationship stays sound? Same thing with a community like New Orleans. How does the business community, the arts community, the education system, etc., all work hand in glove to make a city like this not just a viable place to live, because there are certain, of course, physical things that need to be done in order to mean that we can all stay here, but also a vibrant place for us all to live. Was there sort of a, a defining moment when you wanted to get more directly involved with conservation? I know you're very involved with Lewa Wilderness in northern Kenya. And yeah, I um, brought my seven-year-old son on camel safari um, in 2012, 13 maybe. And the poaching of elephants had really spiked. And part of bringing him on safari was I wanted to introduce him to all of my friends, many of whom I had grown up with and around Kenya from before. And so I, I, you know, I went and stayed with the Douglas Hamiltons and various folks like that. And they all said, God, the poaching is so bad. And everybody, nobody knows about it yet. And everybody needs to stand up because the, the elephant's going to go extinct. I mean, we're, they're getting, killing 50, 70,000 elephants a year. 100,000 elephants a year, but crazy numbers. And so then I'm on camel safari with my seven-year-old, and we're sitting in this tent at night listening to a herd of elephants breathe all around us. And I thought, God, man, if I don't do something about this, then shame on me and how irresponsible. So I, And then I started to think about, well, what could I actually do? Because that's, of course, a different question. Um, and so I then came back to um, the States and immediately started the Watering Hole Foundation so that I could make art in situ, in this case in Africa, bring it back, sell it, and earmark the money to go back to the communities that were working to help, in that case, stop elephant poaching. But it morphed into sort of helping to protect their, their, their local wilderness because it's really not a question about elephant poaching, although that's a part of it. It's really more about preservation of the wild because, you know, you need the land and the forests and the savannas and the rivers and all the rest of that stuff for a healthy environment. And you can stop the poaching, but if there's no place for the elephants to live, then there's no place for the elephants to live, <laughs> right? So, and so it really started from there. It started from a call to action from friends of mine in East Africa at a, about a specific pressing problem that I was then, I then realized fairly quickly that I could be helpful in my own little way just by doing my own little part. Right. And so you, you were just there this past summer? I was. And made a body of work, correct? I did. I made a few drawings this summer that are now back here at the gallery in New Orleans. We're making prints of a couple of them, small editions, an edition of five of one, and I think an edition of 20 of the other. One or two of the originals is earmarked for the Watering Hole Foundation to go back to East Africa 
And in this case, we'll be specifically buying art supplies for 21 schools in and around northern Kenya. That's paints and brushes and paper and markers and colored pencils and everything that you can think that a, an art supply room for an elementary school should have that none of these places do. Wow, that's incredible. So your art basically directly feeds conservation. It does. Not all of it. Not all of it. I don't want to falsely yeah. advertise. Right. But I, but I do. I make work in the places that I go. I earmark them for the Watering Hole Foundation, which is the public charity that I set up to be able to, to funnel that money legally right. <laughs> to, these, these, to these places and so that other folks can join me in the effort. And then I do. I do what I can. And then you also have, uh, you're also a book writer and illustrator, mm. and you have a new one coming out, right? I do. I've written a series of books over the years, collectively known as Tales from the Watering Hole, which are parables. They're, they use animals from a fictional watering hole that I created based off of uh, bips and bobs of people and places that I've known and have been to. And then in the school of Kipling and Aesop and the anthropomorphic nature of things like Animal Farm and Watership Down, I embraced that medium as a means to articulate what I view as truths about our own human condition through the eyes of the animals in as whimsical a fashion as I can do it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and some, um, I mean, some of them tackle a little bit heavier issues as yeah, well. Yeah, my new book is called The Lying King, and it is about the arc of the archetype of the demagogue and about a, a rather buffoon-ridden warthog who lies his way to the throne and then the consequences for to him for his lying. You have a couple of websites online, or where do you like to point people to find your work? The book will be available at your personal website, the gallery yeah, the website? The book is available everywhere. For website purposes and social media purposes, I just give my website, which is alexbeardstudio.com, because that portal will lead you to all tracks. Right. It will lead you to the Watering Hole Foundation, it will lead you to Tales from the Watering Hole and the children's books, it will lead you to the original art, and will also open the door for anybody who's interested to open a conversation with me in the gallery about what I'm doing, where I'm going, uh, and how people can either acquire or participate. And then that, of course, also feeds into all of the social media platforms from there, too. One stop. That's the way to do it. Anything else? I would say, as a final thought for this conversation, to the artists who listen to this, to be confident enough to do what you think is right. Not what you think will sell, because invariably it's harder to second guess the public's whim, but rather to do your best to find truth in what you do for yourself, for what you make and how you make it, and for the people who view it. And if you do so in whatever medium you choose, you're more likely to be successful. That is a great piece to end on. Thank you so much for doing this. 
Todd, it is always a pleasure to sit with you on my front porch. And uh, hopefully the next time we do this, I'm sure there'll be many more, but probably the next one will uh, actually be in the bush. So With a, with a whiskey instead of a Tusker. Indeed. <laughs> I'll stay away from the Tusker. <laughs> Thanks, Alex.